Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help. Kate Riordan is the author of The Heat Wave. She's a writer and journalist and an avid reader of Daphne du Maurier and Agatha Christie, both of whom have influenced her writing. She lives in the Cotswolds, where she writes full-time. The Heat Wave is her fourth novel. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to talk about The Heat Wave. Yay, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Did you intentionally pick a shirt that matched... The oh, no. <laughs> no, all my clothes are green. It's fine. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Excellent. I just wanted to make sure, you know. <laughs> yeah. A good idea. I should have gone with that. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who don't know, could you please describe what the heat wave is about? So the heat wave is about a mother, a single mother, divorced mother, Sylvie, who's returning to the south of France where she's from with her younger daughter, Emma, for the first time in 10 years. And 10 years earlier, she lost her eldest daughter, Elodie, there. And the book really is about finding out what happened 10 years ago. So it's a sort of a suspense novel, really. And what is it that inspired you to write the story? I know it's not your first novel by any stretch. How did you come up with these characters? Why this story? I think I first of all really wanted to set a book in France. So that was my starting point. And I'd been kind of looking for an excuse for years because I went as a child and spent many, many years in France. My French is not actually very good, but my heart's in the right place and I do love it. So I always wanted to write a book in France. And then I really wanted to write a book about sort of sibling rivalry. And the initial idea was to have it written from the point of view of the younger daughter, the younger sister, Emma, who's sort of 13, 14 in the book. And have her living in the shadow of this older sister that was killed 10 years earlier and how she deals with that, that she's half resentful and half kind of adoring. But then I found when I was writing in Emma's point of view, it was a bit flimsy and I didn't feel as though it was coming very naturally. And so I thought just I'd try out writing in Sylvie's voice, Sylvie being the mother in her early 40s. And it suddenly took off then the book. So then it became a book about mothers and daughters and a toxic relationship between a mother and a daughter. And then I got really into that. And I just sort of 
I'd found my book then and it came quite easily after that. I mean, there was a lot of editing. I'm not saying it was that easy, but it was <laughs> certainly, I felt immediately as though I'd got the right story when I started writing Sylvie's, from Sylvie's point of view. I loved how it wasn't just from Sylvie's point of view, but it was almost as if it was a letter to Emma, yeah. right? It's, it's always like you came in and I was giving this to you. So as a reader, you feel like you're just sort of listening in on a mother's conversation with her own child, telling her this yeah. whole story, which was like, so great, especially as things escalated and got very, you know, exciting. <laughs> Hopefully it's exciting. Yeah, I really, I enjoyed doing that. And my editor and I had a, a discussion early on about, do we like this second person narrative? Is it confusing? And I really stuck up for it and thought it made it more intense, actually, because it's kind of, well, why is she, it's really an apologia to Emma. And why is that? And what's, you know, what's happened and what doesn't Emma know? And that was another reason, actually, for moving the point of view into Sylvie's head so that she became a more interesting narrator, because actually the whole point is Emma knows very little. And if you as the reader are stuck with Emma for the whole book as someone who's totally in the dark, I was worried that it would also become quite frustrating for the reader. Whereas with Sylvie, she can, there are flashbacks in the book that the, the present day is actually 1993, but it flashes back to the 70s and 80s. And that enabled me to let Sylvie in the past kind of reveal sort of clues as to what happened one by one. So hopefully that kind of, you know, draws the reader on and propels the narration along. It was super successful. I feel like from like a craft perspective and structure and everything, it was just perfect. Both sort of went in tandem, letting us like stay in it and yet getting enough of the backstory, just enough at each time to really like care even more. So I don't know. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> With the editing, I've got to thank my, my editor in the UK, my editor in the US, uh, Grand Central Seema. They really worked me hard to make the book tight and said things like, she's sitting by the pool again. Things need to happen. So I think, yeah, I have them to thank for a lot of that. I did the kind of nice atmosphere and they helped me kind of nail down the action. So. <laughs> The atmosphere also was fantastic. I felt like it was my biggest vacation in this whole quarantine time (laughs) where international travel is not allowed. And all of a sudden I could smell and taste and see and hear everything going on in the South of France. So it was such a nice little respite. In fact, I put it in my newsletter this week and said, like, if anybody wants a trip to France, you know, pick up the the e-wave. And so I have all these people saying like, thank you. I got it. And I I feel like I took a trip with you. And it's so anyway, (laughs) that's that's really great. I loved also, as you were mentioning before, this whole relationship with mothers and daughters and how fraught it is. And there's some stuff in here that's very much relatable to really any mother and daughter and any new mother, especially who's trying to get to know their child and you never know what you get. I mean, it's not always, you know, I've said this before, but it's like before I was a mother, I thought that I would have a lot more control over how my kids turned out. And as I've had more and more kids, it becomes very clear to me that I have no control and that they're kind of born the way they're born. And all I can do is sort of, you know, straighten out the edges, but the bed is made. (laughs) So here's, here's one quote. You said, although my joy is laced with fear, it's the kind every parent feels, the kind that hurts your heart and makes the world seem as amazing as it is hazardous. I am a mother. And this is right when she becomes a mother and is sort of trying to figure out how to process this in the yeah. context of the world. Tell and me a little bit. Before it all goes wrong. <laughs> before it all goes wrong, yes. Although it goes wrong kind of slowly. And so you get to 
go along with her, yeah. which is great. Tell me a little about that part of the narration and the relationship between mothers and daughters and sort of your own perspective coming into it. Like, hmm. did you take anything of this from any part of your life or relationships you've seen or, you know, friends or relatives or like, where did this, did any of this germinate in, in a part of your life? I think the thing that really is strongly drawn from my life is actually Sylvie's relationship with her younger daughter, Emma. So in the present day, in, the, in 93, a lot of that is me and my mum. I'm my mum's only one. My parents split up when I was five and I've got great step-parents and it's all great. But mum and I were very close. So that is very much us. In terms of Elodie, who is the difficult child and the child that Sylvie really struggles to bond with, that is very much me having, well, I just, sounds bad saying having fun with, but really letting my imagination go. And I suppose I've been influenced by other books and other films in that sense. So something like We Need to Talk About Kevin is an obvious example of that. You know, a, a mother who actually, I mean, my Sylvia, I think, started off with a much more idealised idea of motherhood than maybe Eva does in We Need to Talk About Kevin. But she becomes more and more ambivalent as time goes on and starts thinking. So there's those questions of nature and nurture, you know, have I, is, are the problems with Elodie my fault or is she born this way? And then what happens is when she, 10 years later, because she decides she's not going to have any more children because she thinks she's terrible at it and she can't, couldn't cope possibly with another one. And then she falls pregnant again with Emma by accident. And then Emma's really easy and it's all slots into place and it's exactly how she dreamed it would be. So then she starts thinking more and more and feeling guilty about this. Gosh, maybe it is actually to do with Elodie rather than me. But I think grappling, I think, you know, even if a mother has a fairly straightforward relationship with their child, there's always loads of guilt in there and worry that you're not getting it right or that you're going to kind of store up troubles for your children. They're going to be in therapy forever because of some small mistake you're making down the line. But it's probably also interesting to say that I'm not a mother. I didn't have children. It didn't happen for me. And that's a whole other story. But I felt actually quite liberated to write this in many ways because I didn't have to, and I'm not saying you know, women writers who are mothers shouldn't write a book like this. But for me, there were, there were no qualms about writing a book that my child would one day grow up and read and maybe think, oh, did mum feel like this about me at any point? I could just go for it. And I felt as though I've got lots of mum friends who, you know, there are things they don't say. There are still taboos. You know, you might say, oh, God, I'm finding it really hard. But for instance, I think a lot of mums don't want to admit that it's often quite boring <laughs> being a mum of young children and very repetitive and you feel like you've lost yourself a bit and you've just become mum or mom. <laughs> so I, I could explore all that and really go for it. And I was sort of trying to do a little bit of a service to mothers everywhere, I think, in that sense. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but that kind of, I can be really honest because I don't have children. And, you know, I think actually a lot of you feel like this sometimes and that's fine. So, thank you. Thank you for the service on behalf of <laughs> everyone. I appreciate medal. <laughs> oh, yeah, medal is in FedEx right now. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you talk a little more about, about your decision not to have kids or is it private or? No, I don't, I'm actually quite open about it. I don't mind talking about it. I actually had loads of miscarriages and I had actually always been quite ambivalent about motherhood. I wasn't sure it was for me. I'm quite, I need a lot of my own space and time. I'm not good with noise. So I was never sure that I would be terribly good at it. 
And then in a sense, it was, I mean, it maybe wasn't taken out of my hands. I could have maybe kept going, but I made the decision that I didn't want to try anymore. And I didn't want to have, I felt as though my body wasn't my own. I felt the hormones were making me mad and I just stopped. And it was a real relief, actually. So I have dogs instead (laughs) who are much easier, I think, probably. I don't know. I find kids easier than dogs. I mean, (laughs) I've had a couple dogs, but I don't know, at least kids, you can like reason with them at some point. You know, I feel like dogs, I don't know. I don't know if they understand me. I don't don't know. I mean, I love dogs, but I don't know. I don't have the gift of dealing with dogs, which I feel like. I have a very, two rescue dogs and there, but one particularly is completely nuts. And I've actually put her to bed in her crate with a cover over because otherwise she would be growling and jumping up and wanting to see who you were and you'll hear your voice. So I, yeah, so, but you couldn't do that with a child probably. That would be seen as a bit cruel <laughs> to put that them to bed and lock the door. would not be a good idea. I would yeah. not recommend that. <laughs> no. So that's the good thing about dogs. You can do that. It's allowed. <laughs> that's true. But I've realized that the, the child equivalent of that is basically putting them in a trampoline because they can't really go anywhere. You zip them in. It's like contained. Yeah, the noise, true. you know, there is a noise factor, but it's usually outside. So yeah, the trampoline Absolutely. as like modern day playpen for kids up to however old. Yeah, <laughs> Sometimes you can just throw your partner in there. Just, yeah. You know. Anyway, zip it all up. <laughs> oh my gosh. In terms of the structure of the book again, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here a little, but I've always been wondering... When you write two timelines like this and you have like such discrete stories going like two at a time, essentially you're writing two books at the same time and then they have to somehow, you know, marry at the end. Did you write like one of them first and then the other or did you write them both in tandem? Like how did you approach this or the writing process of the story? I think I started off just writing random bits that interested me because I have to sort of coerce myself into writing quite a lot. I really love it when I do it, but I sort of avoid it and I fight it. So when I'm writing a book at the beginning, I write bits that I'm interested in. And so they'll be all over the place. And I actually work on Scrivener quite a lot because I find, I don't know if you know that program. Mm -hmm. Yep. It means you can kind of move things around much more easily than you could in Word. And so often I'll write sections and then move the order about. And with this one particularly, I've written a lot of the kind of more difficult scenes shall we say the bits that maybe go in the last sort of two thirds because it's the the flashbacks are chronological they see Elodie growing up and I needed more at the beginning so the kind of the softer bits the bits about when she's pregnant and she's still getting on with her ex-husband Greg so a lot of those were actually slotted in and written quite late and I think if you do that then you can kind of you can play around with it and you can also find little patterns. So if in a 1993 scene, there's a sort of a theme going on, you can maybe have a little hint of that in the flashback that follows that ties those two things together. It might be something to do with the house, you know, and a little feature that crops up in the house that reminds the reader that this is the same place. And I think that can add to the atmosphere and the idea of, you know, the place almost being haunted by memories. So yeah, I do lots and lots of moving about and even old scenes I will then rejig and add in different nuance. And one of the main things I had to work on in the edit quite hard was actually to make the more dramatic scenes more so when I mean it's hard not to give stuff away with this book but Elodie is, is a very troubled child and there are scenes where she's being a bad child and, and kind of scary 
And some of that stuff I had to work on because my editors felt maybe some bits weren't scary enough. I was actually being too subtle with it, which was interesting to me because I think I've got a half brother and sister, but they're quite a lot younger than me. So I did grow up more or less as an only child. And I was putting in sibling rivalry scenes and my editors were saying, that's kind of normal. And I was thinking it was really disturbing and dark. So I had to kind of up all that stuff, but keep it on the right side. I didn't want it to get stupid. I didn't want it to become sort of almost farcical and, you know, too grim and too gory. Because with that kind of, you know, ideas of callous and unemotional children who you worry might grow up to be psychopaths, you, you know, there are a lot of tropes that are used again and again. And it's very hard to sort of escape them entirely. But I didn't just want the neighbour's cat ending up dead. You know, it I wanted to do something a little bit different if I could. So, you know, working on those bits was, was fun. But I've gone on a massive tangent from your original question. So, That's all right. I, yeah, right. I, don't write, I don't write in order by any means. I kind of mess around and come back to bits and then slot it all in as a jigsaw at the end, really. And tell me about how you have to motivate yourself to write. And tell me about that, even though you've decided to be a writer. like <laughs> I know, I know. I'm a masochist. I do, yes, I love it. And if I've had a good day of writing, I feel so sort of calm and lovely and yogic that evening. And I think, oh, I'm just going to do that again tomorrow. And I'm going to have a proper routine. And it all goes out the window. It's really weird. I don't understand that resistance because it's my job. And if I couldn't get any more book deals, I'd be distraught. So who knows? But I, I mean, they get done. I've written five books. So I, I just think I maybe don't beat myself up too much because they do get done in the end. And I never miss deadlines. So, But I think I was a journalist before as a writer. And I think I wasn't even on monthly magazines. I was on weekly magazines. And that really suited me because I'm quite quick at getting stuff down. And I quite like that doing like a little bit of research, write it all up, and then boom, it's done. And it's in. And it's complete. And I can move on to something else. Whereas you know, with a book, it is a kind of, right, we'll see you in a year. And I find that quite tricky to, to navigate because I've always been a last minute person and you really can't be a last minute person if you're writing a 90,000 word novel. You, you know, have a nervous breakdown if you've left it till the last month. So I have to be consistent. So I walk around with a lot of guilt, but I'm coming around to thinking that actually a lot of days when I'm, I think I'm, we, we say in Britain, skiving. I don't know if that's a word in America, where you're kind of bunking off or these are all really kind of British terms, but you know, when you're not doing shirking and not doing the work you should be doing. Maybe procrastinating or you're putting yeah, it off. Yeah, kind of thing. But actually I think I am doing work in my head and I'm walking the dogs and I'm making little notes on my phone. So I think I do more work than I think I do. Things are kind of percolating all the time, really. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Non-stop. Workaholic. Yeah, <laughs> I never stop. <laughs> never stop. <laughs> Slow down already. Come on. <laughs> so are you already at work on your next novel or what's going on in your time now? Yeah, I'm, I'm busy at the moment with stuff for the heat wave, which is really fun, like this kind of thing. But yes, I've started, I've done about a fifth of a book set in Italy and I was used to go to Italy this summer with my parents actually and do some research and I was really looking forward to that but obviously that's been postponed but that is about that's more I suppose if the heat wave is about mothers and daughters this is about marriages and I split up with my husband quite recently which is totally amicable and nice but I think I'm 42 and I think it's an interesting age actually or early 40s late 30s, I think you start, you're still very much young enough to kind of start again. I mean, not that being 50 is not young enough to start again, but you know what I mean, you're kind of probably halfway through your life if you're lucky. 
And I think it's a time where you think, right, what do I want the rest of my life to look like? And is this enough? And, you know, so it's exploring those kind of themes. But I keep saying to my ex, you know, it's not going to be about you and me. It's not going to be about you and me. Don't worry. But I mean, inevitably, you do draw from your life a bit. But it's, I'm really looking forward to that. And there's some American characters in that as well who I'm looking forward to writing. So maybe I can do a research trip to the States as well. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Come visit. <laughs> I had the same thing. I, I got divorced five years ago. I'm 43. So when I was 38 and I'm remarried now, but yeah, it's a good, I feel like hitting your 40th birthday, there's a big shift yeah. in recognition. Like, you know, you only get one life to live and yeah. you know, life's too short to be miserable type of thing. So you might as well, but it's still a big step and a big sort of risk and comes yeah. with a lot of, I don't know, but anyway, so yes, I am really eager then to read your next book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might like it. And I, you know, it's, it is a really interesting age and I've got lots of friends who are going through similar things and it's all happened around the same time, almost as though it's contagious and lockdown kind of finished a few friends off as well in terms of, you know, their marriages, really? their relationships. So yeah, strange times all around really, but I'm hoping I can, you know, write something that speaks to people about that stuff. You know, I think as I've gone on, I have written a few books now and I used to write more kind of historical fiction. And I think as I've gone on, I've got more confident and maybe been happier to write stuff that's closer to me. And certainly I remember when my mum read The Heat Wave for the first time, she said, oh, this is really, this is like you. And she didn't mean, you know, that Sylvie is me. Yeah, um, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah no. or Elodie is me. Elodie, yeah, okay, you know, good. Yeah. Me. You know, imagine that. But just that it felt as though it was kind of me speaking. And I thought, yeah, I think that, that's, a, that's a confidence thing. And I think the next one will be even more that way. Maybe. That's great. <laughs> We'll, we'll get all the way to maybe a memoir in like 40 years. Who knows? You'll work your way slowly there. <laughs> what did you and your ex decide to do about the dogs? Just out of curiosity. We're going to share them. Currently, he's kind of between places at the moment because I've brought him out. So I'm in the cottage. So they're with me all the time at the moment. But he's, yeah, we're going to have a week on, a week off. And that would suit me because I like spending some time in London. I've got family there because I live in the Cotswolds in the middle of nowhere. So I kind of like having that kind of city country thing. So I think that will work well. But yeah, currently I'm kind of a single mum to them and it's quite hardcore some days, especially when it's raining and I have to take them out. But yes, that's how we've decided. So it's been, yeah, it's been very nice and very amicable and he's a big support to me always. So yeah, so, you know, as divorces go, it's been a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever feel scared? I feel like if I were in a big cottage in the middle of nowhere with just me and my two dogs... I don't know. I feel like I get scared all the time outside of cities, having grown up in New York City. <laughs> so anytime I'm like in any sort of wilderness, I'm like, what's that noise? <laughs> yeah, no, I was like that to begin with. I, the first night we spent here, I was kind of, it's, it was that, it was so dark. I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or not. And I was born in London, so I'm like you. But I've got used to it. And it's luckily weird. It's 1750s, this cottage, but it really not very creaky. Fortunately, what there is, is a lot of spiders at the moment because they're all coming in to mate. So every night I'm having to deal with like these huge house spiders. So I've really grown up in the last couple of weeks. (laughs) So yeah, that bit's not fun, I must say. So I need, so fairly soon with quite like another husband, really. That's very sick. Or or perhaps just just an exterminator. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'll get a cat or something and they can get the spiders. Apparently they do, so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? 
I think, well, this is also advice to me. Give yourself a break. Don't beat yourself up all the time. I remember I always talk about this because I love Stephen King, but he wrote a book on writing and it really actually intimidated me. He said, because he's got this prodigious work kind of, you know, ethic. And he said, you know, if you're not writing 2,000 words a day, then, you know, what, what the hell are you doing? You're not really a serious writer and you don't obviously want it. And it really made me, like, not write for ages because I thought, oh, well, I'm just not doing it properly. So I would say you know, do what you can, you know, but also read, 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 because I was a reader way before I was a writer. And you will learn what you like and what you don't like and what's effective. And if you read a book and you're on the edge of your seat, you can look at why that is and look at it as a kind of piece of like a construction. And that's the best way to learn, I think. So there you are. (laughs) I totally agree. Well, if you end up needing to do, you know, research on American divorcees you can just you know dm me or something and we can keep this conversation going Um, that'd be great (laughs) well thank you thanks kate for coming on i absolutely love this book i've like recommended it a hundred times and everywhere i recommend books and just the the way you write and i know we talked a lot about sort of structure and and all the rest but your actual writing style is so beautiful and I just loved it. I just loved it. I, I emailed your publicist in the beginning and I was like, I love this book. I'm like obsessed. <laughs> thank so, you. Anyway. Thank um, you. I, I love that. That's really made my day. Thank you. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. Well, have a great day and stock up on the green shirts for future interviews. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> good Perfect. luck with the dogs. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sydney. All care. right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day Book Blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.